Blog Talk Radio. Human Quarrels Continued. Cassette 1, Side 2. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. North Carolina to enact laws against incendiary publications and prompted the mayor of Savannah, William T. Williams, and the governor of Georgia, George R. Gilmer, to send letters of protest to the mayor of Boston, Harrison Gray Otis. In February 1830, four Negroes were arrested in New Orleans on the charge of circulating it. Walker's death in 1830 did not diminish the influence of his appeal. Negroes regarding it as an inspired work, and Southern whites viewing it as the diabolical Boston pamphlet. Both would have agreed with their contemporary, Samuel J. May, that the excitement which had become so general and so furious against the abolitionists throughout the slaveholding states was owing in no small measure to David Walker. A much profounder traumatic experience was in store for the South in the Nat Turner insurrection in Tidewater, Virginia, in the late summer of 1831. The revolt was conceived and planned by a slave preacher, Nat Turner, a dedicated revolutionary, but also something of a mystic, torn between a New Testament affirmation of love and an even more consuming Old Testament passion for massive warfare against the satanic hosts, in this instance, slavery. After receiving what he considered a sign from heaven, Turner and his followers set about their grim business, killing some sixty whites. Turner's rebellion, Walker's pamphlet, and the appearance of the new abolitionists did not completely crush anti-slavery sentiment in the South. But they combined to give it a blow from which it could never recover, and they were all but fatal to the organized expressions of anti-slavery sentiment, the hitherto numerous manumission societies. Southern abolitionists could not cope with the massive assault by slavery supporters who could now put them in a class with Walker, Turner, and the new militants, the South's new symbols of outrage, detestation, and fear. The loss of the South as a recruiting ground for abolitionists coincided with the acquisition of a new element, greater in ardor than the lost component if somewhat below it in formal education and social rank. This new element was the Negro. The grand abolition movement of the day, which is now agitating the northern states, is of a mixed complexion, with a slice of black and a slice of white, in somewhat unequal proportions observed the New York Herald with a typical touch of derision. This new black element made its debut at the same time as, and in close conjunction with, that of the Boston reformer destined to become the movement's best-known name, William Lloyd Garrison. Looking back in 1855, from a vantage of 25 years, J. McCune Smith, the Negro physician and abolitionist, observed that it was hard to tell which loved the other most, Mr. Garrison, the colored people, or the colored people, Mr. Garrison. 
This reciprocal sentiment first emerged in Baltimore, where Garrison spent some eight months during 1829-30, assisting Benjamin Lundy in editing The Genius of Universal Emancipation. The Garrison-Negro bond of affection was sealed upon Garrison's return to Boston to launch The Liberator. Its first issue, dated January 1, 1831, struck the militant note so typical of the new school. He was in earnest, and he would be heard, wrote Garrison. Moreover, he would be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. The 25-year-old editor had a special message to our free colored brethren, seeking their support and promising them his, inasmuch as we know that you are now struggling against wind and tide. During the early months of 1831, Garrison traveled to half a dozen cities, New York and Philadelphia among them, giving to Negroes a standard speech written with them in mind. In it, he promised to devote his life to their service in order to make atonement for the wrongs done them by persons of his own color. Small wonder, wrote his children, that there were some who took Mr. Garrison for a black man. Partly as a result of his growing familiarity with the Negroes' opinions, Garrison reversed his stand on colonization to make it conform to theirs. It was their united and strenuous opposition to the expatriation scheme that first induced Garrison and others to oppose it, wrote abolitionist Lewis Tappan. Garrison's thoughts on African colonization, published in 1832, was the sharpest and most sustained attack on the American Colonization Society up to that time. Significantly, the entire second half of the small book is devoted to portraying the negative attitude of Negroes toward emigration to Liberia. Garrison's blast changed many minds, doing much to dislodge colonization from the abolitionist movement. The Negroes' response to this Daniel come to judgment was immediate and full. As his black townsmen later pointed out, we had good doctrine enough before Garrison, but we wanted a good example. Concrete evidence of this regard for Garrison was the support given to the Liberator. On the day before the first issue was scheduled to appear, James Fortin sent the money for 27 subscriptions, a $54 windfall that enabled Garrison and his publishing associate Isaac Knapp to buy the necessary ream of paper. I seriously question whether there would ever have been a liberator printed, wrote Garrison later, had it not been for that timely remittance. Five weeks later, Fortin sent $20 for additional subscriptions. For the first three crucial years, the majority of the paper subscribers were Negroes. In April 1834, whites comprised only one quarter of the 2,300 subscribers. The early liberator had a core of Negro agents, including, as of February 1832, Richard Johnson in nearby New Bedford, Jehiel C. Beeman in Middletown, Connecticut, Abraham D. Shad in Wilmington, Philip A. Bell in New York City, Josiah Green in upstate Rochester, John Peck in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and John B. Vachon in Pittsburgh. A veteran of the War of 1812 and a barber with his own shop, Vachon was Garrison's chief benefactor during the Liberator's first years. In December 1832, Vachon sent Garrison $50, which the latter preferred to consider a loan. Eleven months later, when Vachon sent $60, the grateful Garrison expressed the wish that it be considered only an extension of the loan. 
Garrison was less inclined to demur when a Negro group in Boston sent $30 for life membership in the recently organized New England Anti-Slavery Society for him and his publishing associate, Isaac Knapp. Money furnished by Negroes enabled Garrison to take his first trip abroad. In the spring of 1833, Garrison decided to go to England for the threefold purpose of spreading the new gospel of freedom, raising money for a Negro manual labor school, and upsetting the fundraising efforts of Elliot Cresson of the American Colonization Society. Garrison had no money for the trip, but his Negro admirers took up collections, raising nearly $400. Individual gifts ranged from 50 cents to $5.00 and group gifts from $4 to $124. Some groups, such as the Colored Female Religious and Moral Society of Salem, sent Bon Voyage presents. On the eve of embarkation, he was presented a silver medal by the Juvenile Garrison Independent Society, a group of colored youth pursuing virtue and knowledge in Boston. When Garrison, after four months in England, prepared to return to America, he was again without funds, this time he turned to Nathaniel Paul, a Negro Baptist clergyman then traveling in the British Isles to raise money for the Wilberforce settlement in Canada. Paul advanced Garrison $200 so that I could return home without begging, as he phrased it in a letter to Lewis Tappan. Upon his return to Boston, his Negro admirers held a public reception at Marlborough Chapel, presided over by John T. Hilton, fraternal leader and reformer. Negroes sought to protect Garrison from bodily harm. Fearing that he might be waylaid by enemies, they followed him late at night whenever he walked the three miles from his office to his Roxbury home, Freedom's Cottage. These unsolicited protectors were armed with cudgels. Therefore, it was just as well that Garrison, a non-resistant, was unaware of their services. Negroes were powerless, however, to prevent the daytime mobbing of Garrison on October 21, 1835, when he was led through the streets of downtown Boston with a rope around his middle. Put in jail for safekeeping, Garrison was visited by John B. Vachon, who brought him a new hat, at a venture as to the precise size required. The pair of pants which had been torn off Garrison became the prized possession of William H. Logan, who solicited them from the sheriff. At noon on the day of the riot, Vachon had dined at Garrison's home. In turn, Garrison often dined at the homes of Negroes. While on a visit to Portland, Maine in September 1832, he was driven around on a sightseeing tour by Reuben Ruby and entertained at Ruby's home in company with 20 Negroes invited to meet him. While in Philadelphia, Garrison might dine with James Fortin or James McCrummel, and in Albany with the tailor, William Topp. While in New York for the historic meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society in May 1840, Garrison stayed with Thomas Van Rensselaer, without money and without price. James G. Barbados, a fellow townsman and clothing store owner, named his son after Garrison. David Walker's boy was christened Edward Garrison Walker. Negro societies in Boston and New York bore the name Garrison in their titles. The Negro painter, Robert Douglas, Jr., completed a lithographic portrait of Garrison, copies of which sold for 50 cents to further the cause. 
Meeting in mid-July 1831 in the African school room of the two-story brick meeting house in Belknap Street, a group of Boston Negroes took note of Garrison's unstinted exertions on their behalf, viewing him as greatly commanding their thanks and gratitude. The man they so honored hardly seemed of Hall of Fame caliber. Certainly in appearance he was not impressive. Prematurely bald and wearing steel-rimmed glasses, he looked mild and benign, with a touch of the funereal in his dress, customarily a black suit and a black cravat. As a speaker, he tended to become monotonous. He had a penchant for strong epithets, which his associate, Lydia Maria Child, attributed to his being very thoroughly imbued with the phraseology of the Bible, and he was overly quick to charge an opponent with moral blindness or a lack of integrity. He was untidy in his ideas, and his grasp of history, law, and politics was slight. But whatever the catalogue of his shortcomings, his unswerving championship of human rights marked him as a providential figure in an age when the forces of slavery and anti-slavery met head-on in America. This confrontation was welcomed by the latter-day abolitionists, with young leadership, some of it garrisons, and with new blood, some of it the Negroes. Chapter 2. Black Sowers of the Word Now, under the elevated and cherishing influence of the American Anti-Slavery Society, the colored race, like the white, furnishes Corinthian capitals for the noblest temples. Maria Weston Chapman, 1843 The new spirit of abolitionism received its widest expression in the formation of the American Anti-Slavery Society at Philadelphia on December 4, 1833. The 63 delegates from 11 states proclaimed as their twin objects the entire abolition of slavery in the United States and the elevation of the character and condition of the people of color. Three Negroes took part in the proceedings, James McCrummel, Robert Purvis, and James G. Barbados. The Negroes of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, had sent as their representative a white man whom they had swung over to the abolition cause, J. Miller McKim destined to be a stalwart in the movement for more than a quarter of a century. No public gathering of abolitionists was more memorable than this three-day organizational meeting at Adelphi Hall. The sessions had to be confined to the shortening daytime hours at the insistence of the city fathers. The police authorities feared an outbreak of violence, and indeed the delegates were taunted as they made their way along Walnut Street to the entrance of the hall. Disorder inside the building was also a distinct possibility, inasmuch as no one was refused admission, although the doors were locked once the meeting was called to order. But more than threats would have been required to deter the earnest and able group, a plainly dressed, if youngish-looking, band of reformers. At one of the sessions on the morning of Thursday, December 5th, the presiding officer was James McCrummel of Philadelphia, but his fellow townsman, Robert Purvis, was the most observed of the Negro trio at the convention. Soon to marry the daughter of James Fortin, but independently wealthy of inheritance from his white merchant father, Purvis could be depended upon to make his presence felt in a public gathering. Forty years later, John Greenleaf Whittier could still remember his initial impression of Purvis at Philadelphia. I think I have never seen a finer face and figure and his manner, words, and bearing were in keeping, 
Who is he? I asked. Purvis himself did not feel that he was at his best, confessing that his heart was too full for his tongue. But he did add, It is indeed a good thing to be here. The other Negro delegates could have echoed that sentiment. Even James G. Barbados, who, en route on the boat trip from Boston, had to walk the deck during a stormy night, his color a bar to a cabin berth. On the final day of the sessions, the delegates ratified the Declaration of Sentiments, a forthright call to action couched in revolutionary language. It had been written the evening before at the home of Delegate James McCrummel, where its chief author, William Lloyd Garrison, was a house guest. Of the 63 signers of the Declaration, the 23-year-old Purvis was destined to live the longest. On the board of managers named by the convention, six Negroes were given seats. The three delegates plus John B. Vachon, Peter Williams of New York, and Abraham D. Shad of Chester County, Pennsylvania. The founding of an abolitionist society northwide in scope gave a new thrust to the crusade and a fresh hope to Negroes. Within three days after the delegates left Philadelphia, a young colored woman, writing under the pen name Ada, sang their praises in verse, concluding with the stanza, Their works shall live when other deeds which ask a nation's fame have sunk beneath time's whelming wave, unhonored and unnamed. Negroes took part in the organization of affiliates of the New Parent Society. The Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, successor in 1834 to the New England Anti-Slavery Society, elected James G. Barbados and Joshua Easton of North Bridgewater to its board of counselors. The twelve men who had founded the New England Anti-Slavery Society in January 1832 included no Negroes, but the latter made up one quarter of the signers of the Society's Constitution and Samuel Snowden was named on its first panel of counselors. At the initial meeting of the Middletown Anti-Slavery Society in February 1834, Jehiel C. Beeman was a participant, being elected one of its five managers. In October 1835, David Ruggles was among the 400 delegates in attendance at the organizational meeting of the New York Anti-Slavery Society, which had to be moved to Peterborough when a mob occupied its first meeting place the Supreme Court Chambers at Utica. Seven Negroes took part in the first meeting of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, held at Harrisburg in January 1837. As might be expected, this roster included Fortin, Purvis, and McCrummel. Their associates were John C. Bowers and Presbyterian pastor Charles W. Gardner, both of Philadelphia, John Peck, a barbershop owner in Carlisle, and Stephen Smith of East Fallowfield. Smith's partner in a lucrative lumber business, William Whipper, sent word from Columbia expressing regret for his absence. As usual, Negroes were moved by the experience. I never spent a more agreeable time in my life, wrote Bowers. The high spirits of these pioneers must have been matched by those of clergyman Jehiel C. Beeman when, a year later, he organized a white anti-slavery society at Glastonburg, Connecticut. In the summer of 1838, two branches were organized in Maine, immediately following a visit by Charles Lennox Raymond, then a traveling agent for the parent body. The new abolitionism was characterized by the organization of women's auxiliaries, and in this effort, too, Negroes took part. 
women had attended the organizational meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society in Philadelphia, where they had been urged to form their own auxiliaries. They had not been invited to sign the Declaration of Sentiments or to join the society, but even to invite them to become abolitionists was somewhat in advance of the times. Public opinion held that reformist activity was defeminizing and that a woman reformer had somehow unsexed herself. The shout, Go home and spin, often greeted a woman on the public platform. But the spinning wheel was being replaced, giving women time for something other than household work. With the coming of the abolition movement, many budding women's writers found an outlet for their energies. Hence, the invitation from the new national organization was quickly seized upon. On December 14, 1833, the Female Anti-Slavery Society of Philadelphia had its birth, with Lucretia Mott its guiding spirit. Mrs. Mott later recalled that at the opening meeting, the women, lacking experience in parliamentary procedures, had called upon James McCrummel for assistance. The best known of the four Negro signers of the Society's charter was Sarah M. Douglas, the Quaker principal of the preparatory department of the Institute for Colored Youth, where she doubled as teacher of reading. The three other Negroes were sisters, Harriet Purvis, wife of Robert Purvis, Sarah Fortin, and Margareta Fortin, the last chosen by the Society as recording secretary. Seven days earlier, the sisters had received a moving tribute in poetry to the daughters of James Fortin from John Greenleaf Whittier as colorblind in looking at a person as in peering at a painting. Founded also in 1833, indeed antedating the Philadelphia Society by two months, was the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society. One of its five counselors was young Susan Paul, whose brother Thomas was an apprentice in the Liberator office and later a graduate of Dartmouth. At the annual fairs, a money-raising scheme originated by the Boston women, Miss Paul invariably superintended one of the tables. Early in 1837, the Boston Society initiated an exchange of letters with kindred organizations, a step which led to the first anti-slavery convention of American women. Gathering in New York in May from ten states were more than 100 delegates, among them Sarah M. Douglas and Sarah Fortin. Two particular friends of Miss Douglas were present, Sarah M. Grimke and Angelina E. Grimke. Carolina-born aristocrats turned Quakers, Sarah and Angelina left Charleston in the late 1820s to come north and bear witness against slavery and for women's rights. At the convention, each of the sisters delivered a strong address, both published by vote of the delegates. Sarah's Address to Free Colored Americans and Angelina's appeal to the women of the nominally free states. The convention also issued a circular bearing a poem by Sarah Fortin calling upon women to abandon race prejudice. At the second anti-slavery convention of the American women, held in Philadelphia in May 1838, Susan Paul was chosen as one of the vice presidents and Sarah M. Douglas as treasurer. Grace Douglas and Harriet Purvis attended the convention, which had to hold its final session in a schoolroom, a mob having burned down its Pennsylvania Hall meeting site. Undaunted by intimidation, Sarah Grimke sponsored a resolution calling upon American women to treat Negroes on the basis of social equality, to appear with them in public places, and to exchange home visits. 
The third of the women's national anti-slavery conventions, held also in Philadelphia and in May, met at the Pennsylvania Riding School, no better place being available for so unpopular a gathering. Again, two Negroes were given office, Sarah M. Douglas being continued as treasurer, and Grace Douglas, her mother, receiving a vice presidency. The mayor of the city urged the women to hold no meetings in the evening, to avoid unnecessary walking in public with colored people, and to close their convention as soon as possible. The delegates countered by drafting an appeal to American women on prejudice against color, a plea to roll back the tide of racial bias. It is worth coming all the way from Massachusetts to see what I see here, said Clarissa C. Lawrence, president of the Colored Female Religious and Moral Society of Salem. The convention of 1839 was the last held by the women, the time having come for their admission to the hitherto all-male societies. The participation of colored men and women in the formation of the new national societies was a natural development. Negroes were abolition-minded, having already formed organizations to that end. The Massachusetts General Colored Association dated back to 1826. The colored convention movement, bringing together Negro leaders from several northern states, began in 1830, and the Female Anti-Slavery Society of Salem, made up of females of color, was organized on February 22, 1832. From the beginning, the American Anti-Slavery Society vigorously pushed the formation of auxiliary branches, thus giving momentum to the movement among Negroes. In 1834, Negro anti-slavery societies were formed in Rochester, Newark, Nantucket, and Lexington, Massachusetts, the last taking the name Lexington Abolition Society of Colored Persons and Whites Who Feel Desirous to Join. In the same year, the Colored Female Anti-Slavery Society of Middletown, headed by Clarissa Beeman, was organized. Six colored auxiliaries to the National Society were founded in 1836, including one at Troy, Michigan, plus a woman's anti-slavery group in Rochester. During the following year, Negroes in New York organized the Roger Williams Baptist Anti-Slavery Society as an auxiliary to the national body, and the Negroes in Geneva formed an affiliate of the New York Anti-Slavery Society. In May 1838, black Philadelphians organized the Levitt Anti-Slavery Society, named after the white abolitionist editor Joshua Levitt. Negroes of a tender age shared in the abolitionist crusade from the beginning. To enlist the sympathies and support of the children was an important phase of most of the reform movements in pre-Civil War America. Our enterprise is a school for the young, wrote the editor of an abolitionist book for children. The Slave's Friend, a monthly designed for juveniles and carrying pictures, hymns, and anecdotes, was distributed without charge. The formation of juvenile anti-slavery societies began in 1834, one of them a girls' group at Providence. The six founders quickly added to their number, bringing in several colored misses, making it a sugar-plum society, said one observer. At their weekly meetings, one member would read aloud from anti-slavery publications while the others sewed. From the sale of their needlework, the young women raised $90 the first year, sending it to the National Society. Negro young people felt a similar urge to unite for a worthwhile cause. 
In Boston, in 1833, they formed the Juvenile Garrison Independent Society. Youngsters of both sexes and between the ages of 10 and 20 who paid an entrance fee of four cents. Almost at the same time, Susan Paul recruited a Garrison Junior Choir, which sang at abolitionist gatherings and gave concerts for the benefit of the Mashpee Indians and similar charities. At a Negro school in Albany in 1834, an anti-slavery club was formed, each member pledging himself to give six cents a month to the national body. Perhaps the first true Negro juvenile abolitionist societies were formed in 1838, when four of them emerged at Pittsburgh, Troy, Carlisle, and Providence. The first of these, in point of time, was the Pittsburgh Juvenile Anti-Slavery Society, formed on July 7, 1838. With David Peck as president and George Vachon, son of Garrison's friend, as secretary, the Pittsburgh group comprised the first cent-a-week society west of the Alleghenies. The 40 members also raised money for the Colored American, a reformist weekly, and listened to declamations from their fellows. The Juvenile Society at Carlisle also supported the Colored American, and the Providence young people gave their assessments of a penny a week to the national organization. In 1839, the Salem Juvenile Colored Sewing Society, another of the early clubs of its kind, paid $15 to the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society for a life membership for an admired adult. The founding of all Negro societies did not lead to any substantial withdrawal of Negroes from integrated societies. Indeed, many Negroes were opposed to all black auxiliaries, holding that they tended to perpetuate the very evils, prejudice, and discrimination they avowedly sought to combat. In truth, however, the Negro abolition societies did not reflect a go-it-alone philosophy on the part of the founders. Doubtless, some of them had felt that they would be more at ease and under less of a strain in a racially separate group. Others may have preferred for a time a Negro society in order to spare their white abolitionist colleagues any embarrassment or hostility that their presence might incur. But whatever their reason, the founders of Negro societies did not envision their efforts as distinctive or self-contained. Rather, they viewed their role as that of a true auxiliary, supportive, supplemental, and subsidiary. Negro abolitionists spoke with the same accents as their white counterparts, although perhaps in a voice of differing pitch. Negro participants, fittingly enough perhaps, formed a more integral component of the abolition crusade than of any other major reform in America. The larger and far more influential body of Negro abolitionists who never joined a colored anti-slavery society would, as a natural consequence, work closely with whites. But much the same was true for members of the Negro societies, which in their outlook and operations were closely tied in to the larger movement. This reciprocal interlocking relationship between black and white reformers may be demonstrated by the support, financial and otherwise, each gave to the other in pursuit of the common goal. We do not wish to be burdensome to any, but we are poor, wrote Congregational clergyman Amos G. Berry in hardly an original vein. Despite their circumstances, some Negroes managed to give for the slave. In the three spring months of 1833, Negroes contributed to the New England Anti-Slavery Society 
$41 of the total receipts of $324. In August, the Society received $4 from a Negro church in New Bedford and $23 from one in Philadelphia. Two months later, the Society received $15 apiece from Philip A. Bell, Susan Paul, and John Remond for life memberships. In the month of November 1834, Negro groups from 12 cities or towns sent $128 to the National Society, about one-seventh of its receipts, $859 for the period. In 1836, Negro groups in Boston and New York gave $81 and $246, respectively, to the Society. Group giving by Negro societies, churches, and Sunday schools was supplemented by individual contributions. Negroes like John B. Vachon and Peter Williams, an Episcopalian clergyman, could send $10, and a less affluent giver, like Coffin Pitts of Boston, might part with $6. John Jones, who died in Philadelphia in September 1834, bequeathed $340 to the Pennsylvania Society, and four years later, William Williams left $287 to the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. Over a 13-year period, the lumberyard owner, William Whipper, gave $1,000 annually to the cause. But an offering from a Negro was more likely to be of the genus Widow's Might. Small givers predominated, like the girl from Glastonbury, Connecticut, who sent $1 to the Parent Society in 1836. Negro donations were not large, but they came during the crucial beginning years, when fewer white men of means had been converted to the cause, and hence when money was scarcest. Moreover, giving by Negroes had a salutary effect on the white abolitionists, spurring them on. James G. Burney, writing from the National Anti-Slavery Office in New York in May 1838 to a Southern congressman, boasted that among the contributors to their treasury that year, was a colored woman who makes her subsistence by selling apples in the streets of this city. Similarly, the support Negroes gave to the anti-slavery journals in the early years of the crusade had a morale-building effect on their white co-workers. Negroes felt a continuing interest in the welfare of Garrison's Weekly. In January 1835, they organized the Colored Liberator Aiding Association, which drafted an appeal addressed to the free colored citizens of the United States. Negroes supported the Liberator's predecessor, the genius of universal emancipation. Its editor, Benjamin Lundy, was not a new school abolitionist, strictly speaking, but he was second to none in unflagging continuous labor in the cause. In October 1829, The Rights of All, the only Negro weekly of its day, urged its readers to subscribe to the genius on the grounds that its principles were rare, sacred, and dear. In 1832, John B. Vachon acted as an agent for the paper. In June of the following year, a national convention of Negroes, meeting at Bethel Church in Philadelphia, voted to extend the patronage of five reformist sheets, those of Garrison and Lundy, plus the emancipator, the abolitionist, and the genius of temperance. Organ of the American Anti-Slavery Society until 1840, the Emancipator had five Negro agents in 1834. David Ruggles, John Peck, Abraham D. Shad, Stephen Smith, and Vachon. Their job to obtain subscriptions and collect arrearages. 
Of these, the most zealous by far was Ruggles, general agent for New York City, who published a series of six articles explaining to Negroes their stake in the success of the paper. When the Herald of Freedom was launched, James Fortin sent five dollars to its editor, N. P. Rogers, accompanied by a note, I should like to have some instructions as to future remittances. Stephen Myers of Albany, in a letter addressed to the general public in December 1842, listed the papers that should be supported. The Liberator, the Anti-Slavery Standard, the Emancipator and Free American, the Western Citizen, and the Charter Oak. The efforts of Negro abolitionists brought a reciprocal response from their white colleagues, a response that took many forms. Not to be outdone, white abolitionists supported Negro journals, dating back to 1827 when the National Convention and the Pennsylvania Society recommended Freedom's Journal. In 1837, the Executive Committee of the American Anti-Slavery Society recommended the Colored American to its members, and at the annual meeting of the Society the following year, slips of paper were circulated to obtain the names of those who wished to become subscribers. Local organizations took up collections for the weekly, among them the New York State Anti-Slavery Society and the Massachusetts Female Emancipation Society. I must occasionally send you a few dollars towards sustaining your excellent paper, wrote Garrett Smith on August 22, 1837, to Samuel Cornish, editor of the Colored American, enclosing ten dollars and adding, The Lord bless you. The Northern Star and Freeman's Advocate, a small, short-lived sheet published in Albany, had 213 white subscribers in January 1843, making up at least half of the total. Abolitionist newspapers carried addresses made by Negroes, a long speech often appearing in installments. The Liberator carried an address by Robert Bridges Fortin, son of James, to the Female Anti-Slavery Society of Philadelphia in November 1834. The Herald of Freedom gave three-quarters of a front page to an address by J. McCune Smith at the annual meeting of the National Society in 1838. Then, 24, Smith held three degrees from the University of Glasgow, Bachelor and Master of Arts and Doctor of Medicine. At the annual meeting the next year, the speech given by Andrew Harris, an 1838 graduate of the University of Vermont, was carried in the Herald of Freedom. Similarly, a year later, the anti-slavery standard printed in full the address given by Henry Highland Garnet, which drew tears from almost every eye, although Garnet was still a student at Oneida Institute at Whiteboro, New York. The speeches by Negroes at the conventions illustrate another service provided by the white abolitionists, that of providing a sounding board. Negro speakers could air the grievances of their black fellows, they could advise well-wishers who were seeking ways of helping them, and they could, like one speaker, call attention to the numerous falsifications of history for the purpose of concealing the merits of his people. In similar vein, the mulatto school teacher C.V. Caples, gave his fellow reformers a terse reading of the ancient past. What built up Athens? What extended Rome? The learning and the arts which came from colored men. Who built the pyramids? colored men, who humbled Rome itself, Hannibal, a colored man. Spurred by the convention speeches of black participants, the editors of the abolitionist press began to look afresh at the Negro, 
offering a counterpoise to the daily papers which seldom included him except in the crime columns. Abolitionist weeklies carried original poems by Negroes, some of them signed anonymously by a colored lady or by a colored girl ten years of age. Two abolitionist weeklies carried the fine piece Orators and Orations, an address by William G. Allen at Central College, McGrawville, New York, where he was professor of rhetoric and belles-lettres. At some time or another, an abolitionist weekly would reprint stanzas from Phyllis Wheatley, along with the bittersweet story of her life, and less often something from the works of George M. Horton, most likely the lines, Alas, and am I born for this, to wear this slavish chain, deprived of all created bliss, through hardship, toil, and pain? The military role of the Negro was not neglected in the abolitionist press. John Greenleaf Whittier, Quaker and pacifist though he was, contributed two such articles to the abolitionist journals, The Black Soldiers of the Revolution and The Black Men of the Revolution and the War of 1812. Abolitionist publications took due note of Negroes who were successful in business or professional life. They extolled J.B. Smith of Boston as the Prince of Caterers. Readers of the anti-slavery press might learn of attorney Macon B. Allen of the Portland Bar, or of John V. DeGrasse, graduate in medicine from Bowdoin College, who had spent two years in London and Paris hospitals and had made several trips across the Atlantic as a ship surgeon before settling in Boston. In September 1834, the Liberator requested Negro inventors to write to the paper so that it could assist them in obtaining patents and also furnish them with proof of colored talent and ability. Abolitionist newspapers carried advertisements of Negroes who ran clothing or grocery shops, invariably adding an editorial note that the proprietor of the establishment was richly deserving of the patronage extended to him. Some advertisements came from owners of lodging houses, invariably Negroes themselves, who had rooms for the accommodation of genteel persons of color. Abolitionist newspapers carried letters to the editor praising this or that Negro in business or the professionals. Thomas Jennings, a surgeon dentist of Boston, for example, received such unbilled advertising. The abolitionist press had a marked effect in making Negroes more active in social and civic affairs. Negro organizations felt no hesitancy in asking these newspapers to carry notices of their coming meetings and lists of their officers. At many Negro meetings, the final order of business was a motion instructing the secretary to send a copy of the proceedings to a specified list of journals. Brief notices of Negro weddings dotted the back pages of abolitionist weeklies. How warming to the self-esteem to see one's name in print! but more important was the sense of civic participation it engendered. As they prepared to organize a state society in the fall of 1838, the abolitionists who assembled at Milton in Wayne County, Indiana, read a sobering letter from Gamaliel Bailey. Bailey was editor of the Cincinnati Philanthropist, the first anti-slavery journal in the West, whose office had been the target of mobs on three occasions. Your troubles are yet to come, and they may indeed be fiery, wrote Bailey. This book is continued on Cassette 2, Side 1.